you love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Georgia voters have joined the party as early voting finishes its second week. We have seen record turnout day after day of record turnout. In fact, as we stand here today, we have crossed the threshold of one million voters. The turnout has Republicans touting changes they made to Georgia's election and voting laws. You know, Stacey Abrams has accused me of being a voter suppressor uh, and I pushed back really hard on that last night, but yesterday we had record turnout for early voting. Democrat Stacey Abrams is pushing back on that idea that high turnout means barriers don't exist. The vernacular way of putting it is more people in the water does not mean there are fewer sharks. And while candidates debate what the early vote illustrates about Georgia's voting laws, voters are turning out for a wide range of issues. It's education, it's um, inflation, it's like the, the prices of everything are so high right now. Um, even the rights of women, I think that's huge right now. Um, that brings me out here. The massive early voter turnout has the political world trying to figure out what it all means for the midterm results. Every person thinks they have the crystal ball. They can see what's going to happen. And let me guarantee you one thing, they're all going to be wrong. What can we learn from Georgia's early voting numbers? And later, we'll hear what's motivating LGBTQ voters in Georgia. I'm Raul Bally, a WABE politics reporter. I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios. I'm Susanna Capaluta, WABE editor. And I'm WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. Next Wednesday, join us for a live taping at the Atlanta University campus. This is Georgia Votes 2022, a podcast from WABE in Atlanta. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote it's a duty. because I want to make an and impact. I vote my because I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. Georgia voters are blowing past early vote turnout records for a midterm here in Georgia. What conclusions can you guys draw from that? Let me start by talking about the numbers. As we tape this, more than 1.2 million Georgians have cast a ballot. That's 17% of the state's 7 million active voters. The U.S. Elections Project down at the University of Florida estimates that 14 million Americans have already voted. And look, I know early voting is not everywhere, but that means nearly 9% of every early vote has been cast here in Georgia. And Gabe Sterling, who works for the Georgia Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, talked about what he believes is driving voters to the polls. Every voter, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, understand that their vote is extremely valuable in the state. If you're in New York or you know, Vermont or something, your vote may not carry quite as much weight as it does in this state for the values that you care about. So I think that's a big thing. And we have seen millions upon millions upon millions of dollars from candidates, campaigns, and third-party organizations driving people to the polls. And I want to mention one other thing, and it seems obvious, but, you know, in polling, people are asked, what is the one issue driving them to the polls? But, you know, when I'm talking to voters like Gail, who didn't give me her last name, 
from Gwinnett County, it's many issues that are driving voters to the polls. The rights of women, I think that's huge right now. Um, that brings me out here. And what, what impacts me in my life every day is basically like, like we said, like inflation and money and how much am I spending on gas and how much am I spending on food and, and me trying to put my children through college and can I afford that? So, okay, as we try and talk about what all of these numbers mean for what the electorate is going to look like, you know, when we get to the end of the day on November 8th, all these analysts are trying to basically read the tea leaves from these numbers. But the reality is that it's really hard to draw conclusions. 1.6 million new voters have registered since 2018. Plus, the pandemic and also new election laws have changed how and when people vote. I stopped by my polling place at a neighborhood library in Atlanta, and I met Bobby Wagner, who voted absentee during the pandemic using a Dropbox, but now in this election is voting early and in person. Once things got a little bit better, the early voting was good. We used to always vote on the day, but more crowded then, so early voting is better. But early vote is very crowded this time. And it's also clear that there is enthusiasm among voters who are showing up early. I talked to two friends, Joanne Hawkins and Pamela Kitt. Hawkins had three peach-shaped I Voted stickers on her blouse. I ask for them every time. <laughs> I need people to see I vote. <laughs> and it's important to me. I'm more excited about this moment. I mean, it takes me back to Obama. I'm happy to see a lot of people who may have not been voted in the past are voting this term, so we ready. <laughs> Some voters have told me they do feel a little bit nervous, though, but not really because of the voting process, but more about whether their candidates are going to be able to pull off wins this November. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on with early voting here. Number one, you know, as we know, campaigns, I think across both parties have gotten much better about messaging early voting, telling people to go. Secondly, you know, Democrats have really complained about the changes to absentee voting and how that process has changed. I mean, the window to request an absentee ballot changed in the 2021 Republican election overhaul. Dropbox access, as we know, is way down from 2020. And, you know, you cannot request an absentee ballot completely online anymore. So there are these things that Democrats say point to as another reason why early vote turnout may be up because people aren't voting absentee. Stacey Abrams' campaign manager says, look, we sent absentee ballot applications pre-filled to 1.6 million black voters in 2018, but we're not spending that money this year because of the new regulations. But also, like I will say, in 2020, it was a pandemic. As we know, absentee voting was much more popular. The Secretary of State sent absentee ballot applications to everyone then as well. And there is, I think, some sentiment among voters this year just to get back out in person, too. Now, I want to talk a little bit about these mass challenges to voter registrations that we're still seeing, even though early voting has started. Earlier this fall, several county elections boards dismissed tens of thousands of these challenges. But I didn't realize that they can still file more challenges, even though, you know, people started voting. What's going on here? Yeah, you know, as we've talked about, the Republican election law in 2021 did not create the ability to to challenge another voter that was already there. There wasn't a limit either, but it explicitly said there is an unlimited amount of challenges each voter can file about another. And it also added a 10-day window for county elections officials to try to adjudicate. And so just with the scrutiny on elections, with the rise of challenges, especially from 
right-leaning groups, we've seen a lot more. I think estimates ranging from 65,000 to 80,000. And a big problem is that there's also not a cutoff time in the law so that you can be challenged theoretically up to election day, which makes things complicated if you're trying to vote. Now, when these challenges get to the local election boards, Vasu Abiraman with the ACLU of Georgia told me that election boards have a really high evidence threshold to move these complaints forward. They're supposed to immediately consider the evidence that is submitted and whether it rises to the level of probable cause. And if they don't feel like it rises to the level of probable cause, they dismiss it. And that's it. The bulk of these mass challenges haven't actually gone beyond this step, but an election board might not be able to meet right away to adjudicate every challenge when they come in. Until they do, a voter's ability to cast a ballot is not affected in this interim moment. So what happens if a voter's registration challenge does reach this probable cause threshold? Well, when they arrive at a polling place, voters will appear in the system as challenged. In some counties, voters can sign a residency affidavit basically on the spot and fix the issue. But if that's not an option, voters will need to use a paper ballot that is marked as challenged. And it'll remain challenged until this challenge is resolved in a hearing. Now, all of this is really confusing. So if you go to wabe.org, we have a FAQ that basically explains how this process is supposed to work. But bottom line, Abi Rahman says that most people shouldn't expect to be faced with the challenge when they arrive at the polls, but educating yourself now about what could happen if you do will help you prepare. And, you know, the Georgia Secretary of State has talked about that changes need to be made. And, and, and leaders within their office are specifically talking about that timing issue, about how close a challenge can be to an election. And I've gone to some of these election board meetings where they take up challenges. And the two big things you keep hearing is they need the resources to even look into these challenges. And they need exact standards, exact rules on when to take up a challenge, when is it probable cause, and when do you kick a voter off the rolls. And that could come during the next legislative session, which starts in January. Now, this week we had another allegation against Herschel Walker, a woman who says she had a six-year relationship with Walker. She's alleging he pressured her to have an abortion she didn't want. The woman came forward anonymously through famous attorney Gloria Allred, And she spoke during a press conference with her video off. Herschel Walker is a hypocrite, and he is not fit to be a U.S. senator. We don't need people in the U.S. Senate who profess one thing and do another. Herschel Walker says he is against women having abortions but he pressured me to have one. Now, this is a second woman who is accusing Walker of paying for an abortion. How do you think this is going to resonate? Walker's response, which has been dodging specifics about the allegation, but saying the whole thing is a lie, is exactly what happened after the first allegation. It's it's similar to what's happened with other scrutiny and reports to Walker. And Republicans, national Republicans, are also following the same playbook and that they're not backing down. This race is really close, despite all of this scrutiny on Walker. And in we're seeing, I think, a change from Senator Warnock as a result, where he's leaning in more to calling out 
some of this stuff in Walker's past, whereas before Senator Warnock, the pastor, you know, has been able to run. In 2020, he ran a largely positive campaign. He didn't attack anyone. He avoided talking about Herschel Walker for most of this year. But in the last couple of weeks, his campaign has launched attack ads on the abortion allegation, on domestic violence allegations. And Warnock himself is calling Walker out for some of this stuff at campaign events. And that's a real shift. But again, as we've said, a lot of Georgians are already voting. With the clock running out, the question is really, does this move anyone's opinion? If you've already decided that you're okay with Walker, that you want him for whatever reason, and these allegations don't sway your vote, why would another change? That's certainly what Republicans are hoping for. And it seems that message from national Republicans and Georgia Republicans to attack the media and to make this about Republicans regaining control of the U.S. Senate is getting through to Republican voters. I talked to Robert Bennett of Richmond Hill at a Herschel Walker rally. I'm not worried about his past. I'm worried about my future with Warnock. And um, Warnock's got a past, too. And, and I'm not surprised that nobody's bringing that up. Not that I, I care to be, get personal with any candidate, but I, I, think, I think the issue is is that the Democrats are doing a better job at, at um, discrediting Herschel Walker. And I think Herschel Walker's a good guy, and I think he's going to win the election. After these first allegations, we immediately saw out of the gate Senator Rick Scott of Florida, uh, who heads up the National Republican Senatorial Committee, coming down to campaign with Walker. And we're seeing the same thing this time around. Uh, Several U.S. senators are out on the trail with Walker this week. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham has been campaigning with Walker. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. So, you know, I think no matter what stories come out between now and Election Day, there's almost no chance that at least national Republicans are going to, you know, part with their candidate and one of their best shots for helping retake the Senate this year. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with WABE Digital Editor Patrick Saunders. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is Georgia Votes 2022. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022 today with Raul Bali, Sam Greenglass and Emma Hurt. And we welcome a special guest, WABE's digital editor, Patrick Saunders, who has just released a three-part series on LGBTQ voters in Georgia. Patrick, welcome to Georgia Votes. Thanks so much for having me. Patrick, we talked earlier this summer uh, during the primaries about LGBTQ voters. We are now just basically days away from Election Day. Tell me why you wanted to revisit this story as we get closer to Election Day. There have been different estimates of the LGBTQ population in Georgia. It's you know sometimes cited as around 425,000 people, uh, but it's a hard metric to nail down. It's not asked uh, that often in exit polling and the census. So uh, we do know, though, that LGBTQ people are typically more politically engaged. And in my research, I found uh, there was an Associated Press uh, vote cast analysis done on the 2020 election that showed that LGBTQ voters made up 9% of the nearly 5 million people who voted in Georgia in the 2020 general election. So that was a surprisingly high number, I thought. And it just shows the importance of that voting block, especially when you're talking about these tight margins in a state like Georgia. You know, President Joe Biden won the state in 2020 by just 12,000 votes. Governor Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by just 55,000 in 2018. 
LGBTQ voters could likely play, you know, a really critical role in where these races end up. And the last reason I wanted to do this series was uh, Georgia's first openly gay Senate candidate is in the race. Uh, it's Chase Oliver. He's a libertarian. And, you know, he's, he plays a big part in the series. He actually, there's an exchange from the only Senate debate that kicks off the uh, first story in the series. And he's, you know, only polling in the single digits, but he very well could send that race to a, a December runoff. Patrick, I'm curious, what kind of historical context do you think is important in understanding LGBTQ rights in Georgia and politics? Same-sex marriage was legalized by the Supreme Court in 2015. It, it was, you know, seemed to be settled law from seven years ago. But in his concurring opinion striking down Roe v. Wade earlier this year, Justice Clarence Thomas said that the court should revisit that decision, practically inviting anyone to go ahead and bring a case before the court. So we could very well likely see a same-sex marriage case come up again that could potentially strike down that opinion. So that puts the issue back into play, especially in Georgia, where a same-sex marriage ban is still on the books. It's part of state law from uh, 2004, and if the Supreme Court overturns its 2015 decision, that ban would likely then go back into effect. So uh, as far as how that relates to these races, you know, it's it's an issue that uh, deserves to get brought up again and asked of the candidates. And uh, Stacey Abrams, she endorsed same-sex marriage when she first ran for office back in 2006. And in August this year, actually with the interview with Axios, uh, Governor Brian Kemp reiterated his longtime opposition to it. Yeah, Patrick, it is interesting because I did, you know, ask all the candidates about their position on same-sex marriage. And there was some, I mean, Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor candidate, was the only Republican at the top of the ticket who would openly endorse marriage equality. And I'm curious then how you see this issue having evolved. Because as we know, in the U.S. House, some Republicans did vote for marriage equality recently. So there's been some movement on the Republican side on this issue, right? But do we see that trickling into Georgia as well. Oh, there's definitely been some movements, you know, overall on the Republican side, you know, uh, and, and just greater also support of it across the country. Uh, there's different f- estimates, but, you know, typically around 70% of voters uh, support same-sex marriage. So this is an issue, especially in the Senate race, because there is this legislation that emerged after uh, Justice Thomas made his comments um, in the Roe v. Wade decision this year. Um, there is a bill called the Respect for Marriage Act, which would basically protect uh, same-sex marriage on the federal level. Level. We know that Senator Warnock supports it. Um, Herschel Walker has uh, not answered any questions about uh, what his views are on same-sex marriage or the Respect for Marriage Act. That could really well decide, you know, whether same-sex marriage gets decided on the federal level. But there's definitely more uh, Republican support. That measure did pass in the House uh, with, you know, a good chunk of Republican support. But uh, it could languish in the Senate depending on, you know, how that race ends up. And this is important because Senator Chuck Schumer has said that he is going to bring the, this uh, bill back up for a vote after the election. So it uh, just uh, reiterates the importance of that race. Since Georgia is now this battleground state and the outcomes of elections here are really decided on very slim margins, what have you seen this time around candidates are doing in getting the LGBTQ vote out? Is there more this time around? On the Democratic side, uh, you know, the state Democratic Party, you know, their LGBTQ caucus that they have um, is pretty well enmeshed in the mechanics of the party at this point. You know, that wasn't always the case as far as, you know, really this open embrace uh, by Democrats of their uh, LGBTQ supporters. But in recent years, that ha- that has changed pretty much after the, the same-sex marriage decision in 2015. I think that was really a, a you know, kind of sparked, you know, greater support and open 
open support, I think is the key word here. You know, you're seeing uh, a lot of engagement from the Democrats. Unfortunately, uh, we did ask the state Republican Party um, to talk about any of their uh, LGBTQ voter outreach efforts, and they, they did not respond. So it's unclear uh, what, if any, they've been doing on their side. Patrick, I wanted to ask you about the imagery that we saw coming out of the Atlanta Pride Parade. You know, in the past, you would see just the mayor of Atlanta, maybe some city council members. You saw major statewide elected officials and candidates at this year's parade. Tell me the significance of that. It's huge. It's a really big deal. And, and especially if you've gone to past pride parades, you know, I've covered Georgia's LGBTQ community going on, you know, about 10, 12 years now. And, and from watching those pride parades and sort of tracking this, it's, you know, there used to be maybe, you know, the Atlanta mayor would be in it, you know, the occasional candidates, you know, specifically LGBTQ candidates that's grown over time. And especially in, you know, 2018, we had the first uh, major party gubernatorial candidate to march in the Atlanta pride parade. That was Stacey. Abrams. You know, there were uh, a few Democratic nominees for statewide office in the race that year. And then this year, so Stacey Abrams was back in the parade. So we have, again, the major party uh, gubernatorial nom- uh, Democratic nominee. Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff showed up. There were pretty much every top statewide contender for uh, the Democrats. Uh, they were pretty much all there, along with, you know, a couple dozen other elected officials. So, you know, that contingent and that whole political contingent of the parade, you know, just seems to get larger and larger each year. Patrick, before we let you go, I just want to go back to the anti-trans rhetoric that we have seen much of on the Republican side across the country. Um, I know that Chase Oliver has really forcefully spoken out against it, but I'm curious from a big picture lens, what do you think is going on? What do your sources tell you about where this rhetoric is coming from and what bigger implications it might have for that trans community and the LGBTQ community broadly? It's sort of going back to an old playbook. Some of that language isn't so much, you know, new. Um, it is really, though, specifically targeted here in this case, um, in this year, um, on transgender people. There's definitely concerns, you know, when anything like that comes up from the source that I talk to and, you know, LGBTQ advocates. So, uh, you know, they're concerned about the danger that, that this potentially puts people in uh, when you're, you know, saying that people are, you know, grooming children, that sort of thing. The political rhetoric, both in Georgia and nationwide, as we all know, has, has gotten, um, you know, a lot more heated um, in the last few years. And they're concerned about what that kind of language means and, you know, the ramifications of that. Hey, Patrick, as we wrap up here, any other, you know, big takeaways from your reporting here? One thing that did stand out was, you know, there was no response from the campaigns of Governor Brian Kemp or Herschel Walker uh, for an an interview for this story. You know, we asked several times, um, did not get a response. You know, Georgia Republican Party uh, didn't respond to questions about LGBTQ voter outreach. It's an interesting issue because, you know, Typically in the past when, you know, I've talked to uh, or reached out to Republicans about, you know, to get their take on, you know, their stances on LGBTQ issues, it's typically not going to be an interview and it'll be a general statement that's issued, sort of a really broad statement about why all voters should support um, the candidate. And it typically doesn't go into specifics about, you know, LGBTQ issues. So this time, you know, both the major party candidates and the party, uh, you know, decided just not to take part. So we're left with the facts and the record. That was a little bit surprising. The most important thing for us journalists is that at least we try to get an answer and do our due diligence. 
That's WABE's Patrick Saunders. You can read more of his reporting for the series at wabe.org. Patrick, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks so much for having me. Before we go, Emma, Raul, and Sam, what will you be doing in the coming week? Well, we're getting ready to do a live taping of this podcast next Wednesday, November 2nd at 6 p.m. at the Woodruff Library on the campus of Atlanta University Center. Please come with your questions as we're going to have a Q&A segment that's going to be part of the next episode. The event is free, but, you know, parking is like three bucks. We'd love to meet you, and we're going to bring WABE swag. We love swag. We hope you do, too, and we hope to see everyone at this live taping. It's our first and only for Georgia Votes 2022 of this year before the election. So please come and help us celebrate that we're almost at the finish line, well, we think. And it should be a fun time uh, to have everyone come and join us for this fun chat that we have every week on a Zoom. Instead, we get to have it in a big auditorium with all of you guys. It's going to be so fun. Can't wait to see everyone. But in other news next week... Brian Kemp is getting some uh, reinforcements on the trail, as he did in the primary. He has Mike Pence coming and Doug Ducey as well, governor of Arizona. So some of the people that that came and stumped for him in the spring are, are back at it in the general. My plan for next week is I've hopefully dispensed with all the big feature stories by the time we get into next week. And it's just going to be following these candidates on the trail to the very end. You know, guys, I'm not thinking about next week at all. Later today, former President Obama will be campaigning here in Atlanta. And on Sunday, Republican Governor Brian Kemp and his Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams will face off in their second debate. Then I'm going to worry about next week. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Emma, Sam, Raul, thank you as always. Georgia Votes is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. Kevin Rinker is our producer. If you have questions or comments, write to us at georgiavotes at wabe.org and come out to see us on November 2nd. Go to wabe.org slash events for all the info. I'm Susanna Capaluto. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 